Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website building platform with simple drag-and-drop tools to make the business building process easy. Get 10% off your first site with code PINEAPPLE. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hey there. You're listening to Pineapple Radio on Full Service Radio, broadcasting from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Atara. And I'm your other host, Ariel, and we are uh, going to have a really fascinating episode today all about indigenous foodways, and we will explain in just a few moments what that means, um, as well as introduce our incredible guests, uh, but first wanted to briefly mention a little bit about Pineapple and um, our partner, Squarespace, uh, who we have collaborated with to bring you uh, this episode today. So as you know, um, Atara will introduce Pineapple really quick. (laughs) Yeah. So as you know, if you've been listening and if you've been uh, following us online, Pineapple is a community for all women who love food. We're about 70,000 women strong across the country. And we produce events here in D.C., New York, and San Francisco, as well as lots of really fun digital content from a newsletter to this radio show, our blog, and our Instagram. So follow us on all of those places. And a key component of our business is our website. Uh, We have been with Squarespace since day one when we started back in 2015. And just as our business has evolved, so has our website. That's Uh, right. It's been really cool to see that come about. And we've been able to build it um, visually as well as the content uh, through the collaboration uh, with so many incredible uh, women from, you know, web designers to also the women who we feature in our content. Yeah. So we're really excited with the support of Squarespace to be bringing you a special segment uh, each time we record that's dedicated to the business advice that we have collected through all of the women that we meet and all of the things that we do. So with that, we wanted to share one really cool thing that we've learned in the past week. Um, Arielle and I got to participate in a really fascinating training called Uprooting Racism in the Food System. It was led by two women from Soulfire Farm, which is a farm in upstate New York. Their names were Ashley and Amani, so shout out to them. Uh, but it was a really fascinating day-long exploration of our history and our roots in slavery, but then how to like practically um, understand white supremacy and racism in the workplace, both at a nonprofit and a business. And a really cool part of the training was this part at the end where we basically had a rubric to assess and evaluate um, all the different components of our organization and where we fell on the spectrum from complicit with racism to questioning racism to dismantling racism to being on the front lines of really fighting it. And it was a really great reflection opportunity for us to understand where we fell in all of these areas. Yeah. So, you know, business advice isn't just um, all about design or uh, marketing, uh, sales. You know, it's certainly looking at, um, you know, the internal composition of your organization and, you know, how you can do better as a business. So check it out. 
Yeah, so you can go to their website, uh, www.soulfirefarm.org. They have lots of resources about how to dismantle racism, to be uh, powerful allies, and to really uh, stand for what you believe in. And we certainly benefited a lot from that last week. Um, So with that, we are going to segue right into our episode. Um, So we are really, we feel very privileged to be having this conversation today. Um, Leading up to Thanksgiving, we really wanted to have a conversation about indigenous food in America. Pineapple is all about community, as you all know. So with that in mind, we wanted to talk about the communities that are affected by the culture of Thanksgiving. Um, So native chef Sean Sherman has said this about Thanksgiving. It's the one time of year that people, whether they know it or not, are largely making indigenous-based foods. There's turkey, squash, cranberries. All of these are pieces that represent indigenous America. Right. And so at Pineapple, again, we're always talking about food beyond the plate. So starting with the plate and looking at what's there, you know, asking questions of um, why. And of course, digging deeper into the history of Thanksgiving um, in ways that perhaps we don't acknowledge um, at our family or friends tables. Yeah. And the genocide of American Indians is perhaps a well-known fact, I think, to all of us uh, through warfare, smallpox, boarding schools, migration. They've all contributed to the systematic erasure of Native people and culture. But today we're going to talk about the history of of the orchestrated attacks on their traditional food systems, which is a really interesting topic. So we'll touch on how the current generation of Native people is expressing their identity around food and claiming food sovereignty. We're also going to explain the notion of appropriating, discovering, or should we say columbusing native culture and the vicious cycle of food trends and how they've intersected with native culture. Um, And we got to listen to a few podcasts on this subject. There's one that we really liked called Toasted Sister with host Andy Murphy. And she says that traditional indigenous food ways were lost, found, redefined, and modernized in the last few hundred years. And here it is today in the hands of native chefs and foodies who work to keep their traditional flavors and ingredients alive. Right. So, you know, Tara and I are definitely uh, not experts on this subject in any respect. So we invited two uh, incredible guests. Um, One is here in the studio with us and the other uh, is calling in. And I'll introduce uh, them in just a moment. But, you know, we just believed um, really fully in the importance and power in having this conversation uh, here in the studio and with you all as a community. So um, with you know, I think Mariah Gladstone is the first guest uh, who I want to introduce, and she's on the line. Mariah? Hi there. Hi. Hi, Mariah. Welcome. Thank you. Good and to be on. where are you calling in from today? I'm calling in from Kalispell, Montana. Amazing. Uh, you're our first guest from Montana. Woo. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and, you know, you're a bit of about your bio, you are a citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma uh, and a descendant of the Blackfeet Nation of Montana. And you're also the founder of the cooking show um, Indigi Kitchen, uh, where you are on a quest to teach and celebrate the lost foods of Native communities. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you. Um, and we're also here with Maura Judkis. She's the writer. She's a writer at the Washington Post and an author of one of our favorite articles that we read last year called "This Is Not a Trend: Native American Chefs Resist the Columbusing of Indigenous Foods." Welcome, Maura. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. 
All right, so we're gonna go right into questions. Are y'all ready? Ready. <laughs> okay, cool. Will each of you please introduce yourselves and tell us a bit about what brought you to the world of food? Um, so this is Mariah. Um, my work with Indigikitchen um, and what I'm doing in um, the digital um, digital medium is really to revitalize traditional foods. Um, a lot of Native people have experienced a forced colonization of our diets through um, a systematic disconnection with our traditional food systems. Um, that ranges from uh, damming of waterways that have cut fish out of the diet of upstream tribes, um, obviously the huge decimation of the bison population, uh, relocation that moved tribes away from traditional gathering and their traditional plants um, or to un infertile areas where they were no longer able to grow. Um, and so over this period of a couple generations, uh, a lot of Native people have lost um, some of that knowledge of what traditional foods are and how to prepare them. So by making digital media shorts, I'm trying to revitalize that um, and restore that food sovereignty in our communities. Awesome. And, and when did you start in DigiKitchen? Um, started it in late 2016, um, but really have begun doing it full time in the last couple of months. Awesome. Well, we have been loving your cooking show and everyone should check out in DigiKitchen. It's fascinating and awesome. Um, and now, Maura, can you tell us a little bit about your work, uh, what brought you to the world of food and journalism, uh, and tell us a bit about your piece last year? Sure. So I'm a reporter for the Washington Post, and I cover food and culture. Um, and so that is such a broad beat, and I think it is really the best beat because it can kind of take me to anything and anywhere. Um, and last year, you know, I got very interested in this issue through the work of Sean Sherman, who you already mentioned, um, and his cookbook that was coming out. And I think that the reason I wrote this story is that a lot of food writers in particular don't really, I think, pay enough attention to indigenous chefs. Um, and when they do, they only pay attention around Thanksgiving. So you get this kind of dynamic where um, people are like, it's time for my Thanksgiving story. I'm going to find um, an indigenous chef or a Native American chef and have them contribute a recipe. But they don't really think about what that means to that chef because a lot of Native people, of course, have very, very complicated feelings about Thanksgiving. And so it creates this dynamic um, where the food media, which is predominantly white, kind of only pays attention to Native American cooking and Native American food for like one week a year and then completely ignores it the rest of the time. So awesome. I guess that, you know, relates to our episode, which is coming out, you know, the week of Thanksgiving. And uh, hopefully this is, a, you know, starting place for the pineapple community to have a conversation about, you know, indigenous foodways beyond um, around the Thanksgiving time. So thank you for bringing that up. Um, and Maura, dig digging into your article, uh, what exactly does it mean to Columbus food? Uh, and what, what's the potentially harmful impact of that? Sure. So Columbusing is, I'm not sure exactly who named this phenomenon, but I think it's so clever. Um, it's, it's the idea that, um, that something that has existed for years or centuries even um, isn't really something that's paid attention until white people quote unquote discover it. Um, and so you see that with a lot of other food cultures um, 
like especially in Asian food cultures recently, there's been a lot of outcry on the internet about um, white people columbusing ramen or pho or a number of other dishes. Um, and you know, when something has been columbused, typically it's something that um, people have been doing a certain way for centuries. And then a white chef, in, in particular with food, I guess, a white chef will come along and try to change the recipe or um, they'll they'll update it or or this is the worst word to use refine it because mm. to say that something needs refining even when it's been working great for centuries for a certain group of people um, can tend to be really offensive obviously uh, and so in this case um, with Native American food we have been seeing a lot of interest um, from from the white food media about Native American restaurants because there are a lot of Native American chefs that are beginning to open their own restaurants. Um, and then you, that leads to this, this kind of squidgy area where people are saying, oh, it's a trend. But there are a lot of Native American chefs who are pushing back on that, saying this is not a trend, this is a way of life. And then you end up getting, you know, the worst case scenario, really, which is that people who have literally been Columbus, who were discovered by Christopher Columbus, quote unquote, discovered, are now having their food systems Columbus as well. Yeah, it's pretty backwards, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mar- that Mariah, this question is for you as well. I mean, do you think that the... Uh, you know, the culture of social media has kind of accelerated this phenomenon where people are kind of like trying to trying to get something that's trendy to share with their audiences. And is that becoming more harmful? I think there is a healthy interest in indigenous food um, that is coupled by that more damaging thread of Columbusing. Um, I see Sean Sherman's um, The Indigenous Kitchen book uh, regularly checked out at my local library, um, and I live in a predominantly white community. Um, so there's a lot of interest in it. I've had different people approach me about the subject of Indigenous cooking. Um, but there's also, a, of course, that, that idea of refinement and especially within food spaces um there's also this lot a lot of um overtone and desire to try to put cooking methods um in terms of french terminology um and try to um kind of take what we know about cooking and filter it through these methods that we're more familiar with um, in, you know, this colonial society system. And so I think in order to really learn about indigenous cooking, even using a modern kitchen, um, it requires kind of wiping what you know about cooking rules um, and starting over, just starting from scratch um, and coming with an open mind that blank slate. Mm. And so, you know, beyond uh, chefs, um, who are some other contemporary, you know, native activists or bloggers um, in the food space that are inspiring you and your work right now? Um, so I really, um, I look a lot to Brian Yazi, who goes by Yazi the Chef. Um, he 
has kind of become a resource when I'm wondering about um, certain aspects of cooking. Um, he's kind of a culinary school graduate mentor. Um, but I also look to folks um, outside of the food space um, because everything's so connected. So um, Dr. Adrian Keene runs a blog called Native Appropriations, um, which talks a lot about um, designers or um, Halloween costumes, um, different aspects of people borrowing from Native aspects of different Native cultures, um, and then that idea of Columbusing, um, appropriation becomes kind of a buzzword, but the idea is that um, things are, of course, being distorted for the benefit of a settler society. So just reading some of her blog and academic work um, and also, you know, transferring that, putting in the perspective of the food space. Awesome. Well, it's definitely important to, you know, think about the native chefs that are doing this year round. Um, and we're excited to, for our audience to check those people out. Um, and so, you know, on the subject of, you know, not only dwelling on things that make us really bummed out <laughs> potentially like culinary appropriation or Columbusing food, we wanted to talk a little bit about food sovereignty. Um, so just some context, and we pulled, we pulled these from different articles and uh, podcasts that we listened to on the subject, but um, the definition of food sovereignty is the right of people to healthy and culturally appropriate food produced through ecologically sound and sustainable methods, and their right to defend their own food and agricultural systems. Define their own food. Yes, and define their own, yes, their own food and agricultural systems. Um, so some examples of ways uh, of ways that food is tied to native culture um, is that tr traditional foods have an important context and meaning and plants have stories and a very spiritual component of that culture. Um, so Mariah, if you can start us off here, could you please tell us a little bit about how food plays this crucial role in the story of colonization in America? Yeah, um, there's obviously, um, you know, we talk about the genocide that occurred on American soil um, and the ways in that was in which that was perpetuated. And that extends beyond physical warfare and killing um, that, of course, you know, you briefly mentioned smallpox, disease warfare. Um, and that was, of course, a huge part of the decimation of native populations. Um, but, as um, the new American government came in conflict with Native people, um, there's a quote in the 1850 Commissioner of Indian Affairs report that says it would be cheaper to feed the whole flock for a year than to fight them for a week. Um, and the idea proposed was essentially to make Native people rely upon the U.S. government for food. Um, it's hard to have an uprising against the hand that is literally feeding you. Um, and so in order to do that, um, there was this systematic decimation of Native food systems. Um, in the eastern U.S., where there was a lot of farming communities, um, for example, the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois, um, 
George Washington wrote a letter of direction to one of his generals, which tells him to burn the Iroquois fields so that they may never be planted again. Um, Very much scorched earth policy. Um, And then transferring that to the Great Plains, there was, of course, um, this very intentional destruction of the bison populations. Um, The nomadic nature of Native people combined with the ever-presence of bison meant that tribes could continuously travel and not have to go back to any town or location in order to restock on goods. And as an adversary to the U.S. government, that made things remarkably difficult on the army. And so, of course, bison were slaughtered in huge numbers, um, and that became this reliance on government food systems became part of the story of Native American food. Um, And so we start seeing rations, we start seeing um, eventually commodity foods, um, and now a lot of folks on um, different food assistance programs like SNAP, um, like WIC, different programs like that, um, but also with Native people also living predominantly in food deserts. Um, And so, of course, from rations, we get things that Native people didn't know as food, but eventually morphed into fry bread, um, which is now known as a staple of American Indian diets, which is fascinating. Um, But all in all, it kind of resulted in this disconnect from our traditional food systems. Right. And this is the erasure of, you know, tons of different tribes and communities, not just one, right? Um, Yeah. Yeah. This took place across the U.S., um, but, you know, with over 500 different nations, um, this played out in different ways, depending on, you know, whether tribes were nomadic, whether they were farming communities, whether they were relocated. Um, so it played out in different ways, but the idea was always to disconnect people from their food systems and from their ability to feed themselves. This idea of food sovereignty um, was really distorted at this period of time mm-hmm. and to today. Thank you uh, for sharing that context. Maura, what have you learned in your research and in writing this article on the topic of, you know, whether it's food sovereignty or um, how, you know, food has played a role in the colonization of the United States? Sure. I think one thing um, is that when we're taught about Native American food in elementary school, in a lot of schools in America, you know, Native Americans are kind of treated as like a monolith. The people who teach children about this don't really recognize that different tribes have different customs and cultures, of course. And fry bread in particular, which Mariah brought up, um, is something that is taught to children as like a Native American food, not recognizing you know, that different tribes have different food systems and different uh, traditions. But with fry bread, um, you know, a lot of people that I spoke with for this story find fry bread to be uh, a symbol of oppression, really, because fry bread, um, of course, is this fried fried dough, um, and it was made from 
uh, rations that were given to Native Americans, um, and it's not really part of a traditional food system. It's kind of part of what was what they were dealing with, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when when we teach fry bread as um, you know a beloved Native American custom, um, you know it is something that people that people do eat and enjoy, of course. But it also has contributed to a lot of health problems in the Native American community and health outcomes for Native Americans and indigenous people in the U.S. Um, are, are far worse than many other minority groups here, too. And part of that is just because of what they are offered for their food systems. You know, um, in the subsidy boxes that are given to Native Americans today, um, a lot of those are like powdered milk, um, lots of canned foods, a lot of things that aren't part of their traditional food systems. And because they are in food deserts and have lost the means to um, grow and cultivate their own food, they're really relying on these foods that have caused a lot of diabetes and hypertension. And so, you know, the, the way that the Native American food system has been systematically decimated over years has really resulted in a terrible health outcome, and it's a real crisis. Mm. Yeah. Um, and Mariah, this is a lot about what you write about um, on Indigi Kitchen is focusing um, on pre-contact foods, as I think you've uh, called them, uh, like wild game, berries, corn, squash, wild rice, and how using them helps bring about uh, cultural revitalization and health in Native communities. Uh, so hoping you can touch on that piece and, you know, how are Native communities using food to, you know, heal and, and resist uh, this, you know, story of colonization and the effects of that? Yeah. Um, yeah, I call things pre-contact. It sounds a little bit better than pre-invasion. Um, but it, the idea is focusing on foods that would have been found in the Americas prior to 1492. Um, and... For Native people, of course, that cuts out flour, sugar cane, um, dairy products. Um, a lot of these things that are now staples of the American diet. Um, but for Native people living in food deserts, um, relying on a lot of processed food, government rations, we have extraordinarily dismal health outcomes. And so... You know, looking at the statistics, we see that 50% of Native youth born today are expected to develop diabetes in their lifetime. Um, it's, you know, in Montana, when folks develop diabetes, Native folks are, I think, three times more likely to die from it than non-Native folks. Um, so that plays into health care um, and also food systems as well. Um, and then, again, in Montana, our life expectancy is 20 years less than non-natives, and that's across both men and women. Um, and so a lot of these health concerns is really what led me to start working on traditional foods. Um, we, you know, living in food deserts, relying on grocery stores can be challenging, especially on my own reservation, where snow and 90 mile an hour winds tends to strand us in the wintertime um, and prevent deliveries of fresh food, Uh, but also recognizing how our ancestors were surviving, what plants are edible that are still here, Um, what 
animals that we still have the ability to hunt are still here, and then how to make that connection between access and excitement. So I'm working more from the excitement side um, and just trying to get people interested in cooking these foods, realizing how simple it can be, um, the ease of it, where they can find them, the affordability, um, but also partnering with some folks that are working more on the access side. So looking at um, the Intertribal Agricultural Council um, and helping them with the Native Youth Food Sovereignty Alliance, um, of which I serve on the board. So trying to help young people also um, make some of these connections to promote food systems within their communities. And then um, connecting that to the larger policy scope and trying to get Native inclusion within documents like the Farm Bill um, and really focusing on these systems as a whole. Yeah. I mean, that is so powerful. And I mean, you mentioned that, you know, there are people who are working on access and people who are working on excitement. And we think that coming at it from a place of like just awareness building joy and excitement is like very powerful and it's a form of resistance. Uh, so that's very cool. And um, yeah, I mean, our, our last question before we segue into the next section is really thinking about how Native communities are using food to heal and to resist. Uh, so, Mariah, you're definitely on the front lines doing that. Uh, if you have other organizations or movements you wanted to share, we'd love to hear about them. Yeah, um, I mentioned before, Intertribal Agricultural Council doing a lot of great work. Um, the Indigenous Food and Agriculture Initiative is actually a policy organization based at the University of Arkansas School of Law. Um, but they're helping... Uh, Native communities write their own food and ag codes. Um, as sovereign governments, we have the right to do so, but there's a lot of um, infrastructure that has to take place in order to make that possible. Um, but the folks down there are doing really great work to help put that into place. Um, and then a lot of Native communities are doing their own work on the ground as well. So uh, it's cool. There's a lot of, like, Food Corps has a lot of members um, stationed on reservations that are working on gardens within the school system. So that's an AmeriCorps program, of course, um, and working on connecting, food, food, uh, connecting folks with culturally appropriate foods uh, within their own communities. Awesome. And Maura, did you have any that you wanted to shout out? Oh, um, I could shout out to uh, Natifs, N-A-T-I-F-S. It's Sean Sherman's foundation. Um, when I had a really long interview with him, he um, was explaining to me some of the things that they do. And part of it is funding um, native-owned food businesses. And the other part is actually uh, working with scientists to cultivate seeds, to, to bring back seeds that have kind of been endangered or lost um, that are part of native traditional food systems and to create a seed bank and um, and kind of perpetuate those plants forever. That's awesome. We love seeing the, the movement grow, and uh, we'll talk more later about how we can all get involved and, and support and be allies too. Uh, but let's talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs> we are on the cusp of Thanksgiving. Um, and first, we, we really wanted to ask how uh, our Thanksgiving choices, how our traditions, how the culture is inextricably connected to a very fraught and gruesome history? It's a very big question, but we think it's an important one. Yeah, the history of Thanksgiving is really fraught with Native people. Um, in part, that's because a lot of tribes historically had 
harvest celebrations. So harvest ceremonies, um, honoring of different times within the cycles of plants and um, successful hunts were often celebrated. Um, And then, of course, it gets masked with this whitewash narrative of history and this story of pilgrims and Indians, um, which, of course, is problematic in itself because it glosses over um, the massacres that were taking place, the intentional transfer of biological weapons such as smallpox, um, and the current issues that are happening between the current administration and the Wampanoag Nation um, in which they're trying to seize lands from them right now in 2018. And so um, this issue of whether Native folks celebrate history or celebrate Thanksgiving um, under this whitewashed narrative is more complex um, than just um, this celebration of giving thanks that Abraham Lincoln decreed in the Civil War. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I think we really... Um, admire um about you know the indigenous foodways that we've come to learn about is certainly um you know celebrating uh harvest at different points of the year um as well as other you know rituals around food and nature um what are some good resources uh that you know the pineapple community can turn to uh to uh read or learn more about what you were just referencing Um, so resources. Um, I would say that, um, well, with the internet, there's a lot of resources that are accessible online. Um, and that's really excellent for educating more about some of this complex history. Um, I would say that And we can come back yeah. to it later if you want. I know I kind of put you <laughs> okay. on the spot there. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm just thinking of resources besides um, just tuning in and Googling indigenous food systems and what percentage of the world's food comes from the Americas and looking at um, your pantry and finding where your food originated from, mm-hmm. um, I think is always just really deep diving into some of that has a bigger impact often than just going to um, a single blog or a single voice. Yeah. I mean, at Pineapple, we talk a lot about uh, one's pantry. Uh, We have a whole editorial series called Pine for Pantry. But um, when we think about uh, the sourcing of our pantry goods, we generally only ask as far as like, where was this grown? How was it grown? You know, who grew it rather than what is the perhaps origin of this good? And um, for so many of the things that we know and love today, uh, those do have, you know, indigenous roots and there's a lot of history there and and ritual too. Um, One book that I've been reading, which doesn't talk as much about food systems as much as it does, you know, kind of nature and plants in general, um, is uh, Braiding Sweetgrass. Have you read that book, Mariah? That's a wonderful book. Yeah, I am about halfway through and, and really enjoying the perspective and learning so much 
Um, so recommend that to pineapple. Uh, but on that note, I think for both Mora and Mariah, um, you know, we're thinking about um, our community and, you know, many people will be uh, coming uh, together with family and friends around on Thursday, um, celebrating Thanksgiving or uh, in some other capacity. And, you know, wanting to ask you to, um, what are some practical things that our community can do um, around their table uh, this time of year uh, to recognize um, our difficult um, and problematic past that we've touched on today in this episode? Um, I guess one thing that people could do uh, would be to seek out um, Native purveyors of food for ingredients that they're going to be preparing for their Thanksgiving dinner. Um, that would be a really great way to to put um, both money into those communities, but also, you know, businesses um, that, food businesses from uh, Native American Indigenous people um, they those businesses will support their own communities as well. So, uh, and I would say, don't even just do this at Thanksgiving. You could do it all year round. Um, you could buy wild rice or salmon at some other point. I know salmon's not something that people have that often for Thanksgiving, but maybe they will. Um, wild rice, vegetables, all kinds of different ingredients from native businesses across the country. There are ways to get them online. Um, and that I think that would be a great way to support these communities and to help people, um, you know, continue to grow these food systems. Yeah. Yeah. I, along that same thread, um, if folks are interested in trying to figure out how to buy native foods, um, the American Indian Foods Program um, has an online marketplace so folks can go online and they can buy chili powder, wild rice, maple syrup, um, these different products that are produced in Native communities by Native producers and then um, with the assistance of the American Indian Foods Program are marketed on a larger scale. And then also, of course, um, you know, as part of, you know, this celebration of giving thanks, being grateful, um, recognizing where all these foods are coming from um, and, you know, just looking kind of deeper than the stuffing mix packet, (laughs) Um, but looking at, um, you know, if there's ability for you to connect with local food systems and if you can get a turkey from a local provider rather than um, a big company um, that's mass producing turkeys, it also, it reduces um, some of the environmental impact of that food, but it also helps connect you to your local provider and helps remind us to take care of the earth. Um, It's where food comes from. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, revitalizing a lot of those local food systems and, you know, eating the foods that we do on Thanksgiving is also part of eating seasonally. Um, Those foods are in season or ready for harvest at that time. Um, and then try to carry that through to other parts of the year um, and recognizing what's in season. It's popular to look at seasonal eating and locavore eating, but also recognize that a lot of that comes from an indigenous tradition. Right. That is very powerful. Um, and what about for some some folks that will, that are listening that might be a little bit more, uh, you know, conversational or confrontational? Are there, uh, you know 
specific discussion points or things that our community could say at the table to really recognize our past and uh, the struggles of the Native communities? Yeah, um, I would say for Native, non-Native parents listening, um, if your school, if your child comes home from school in a paper headband um, or has to enact some first Thanksgiving play, um, I would talk to your school's teachers or principal about that. I think that um, we really need to start dismantling the whitewashed version of history that's presented um, when Thanksgiving wasn't even a holiday until Abraham Lincoln uh, made it so. Um, So, you know, deconstructing some of that narrative and then um, talking about genocide at the dinner table. (laughs) Uh, Unpopular. Um, But really thinking about um, Native, the impacts um, and the resiliency of Native communities, but also using it to help understand Native issues in the present um, and the issues that we're still dealing with, both in terms of food systems, but also, um, you know, the epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women um, that we're facing and the issues that we're still dealing with today. Um, And so approaching some of that stuff, don't necessarily need to do it at the Thanksgiving dinner table, but using, you know, your pantry, using the cranberries in your sauce to remind you to help advance uh, Native causes and recognize the struggles that we're dealing with today. Absolutely. We love the power of the pantry, the power of conversation. Uh, Thank you both so much for being here. We're very sad that we have to hop off. Uh, We, uh, yeah, we're here with Maura Judkis from the Washington Post and Mariah Gladstone talking to us uh, from Indigi Kitchen. And as our last question before we hop off, very quickly, where can our audience find each of you? I'm easy to find, (laughs) WashingtonPost.com. Great. And Mariah? You can find me at indigikitchen.com. It's I-N-D-I-G-I kitchen.com. Great. And I'm Atara. And I'm Arielle. Thank you guys again for joining us, um, listeners, as well as here in the studio and on the phone. Um, Please um, leave us your feedback um, on your podcast app. And as always, you can send us a note. um, Hello at pineapplecollaborative.com. Send us a DM on Instagram. And uh, thank you all again. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website building platform with simple drag-and-drop tools to make the business building process easy. Get 10% off your first site with code PINEAPPLE.